we come to hear God word or God speak to us in his word. Let's pray. Lord God, this morning we come to your word and we come as hearers and there are difficult things that are in this, this word that you have for us today. Uh, things that might cause us to, uh, to cause our, or to, to bring our, our shields up or to build walls or perhaps things pressing upon us that might distract us. So we pray though that you would speak gently to us that we would put down our shields and look over our walls and that we would be focused upon what you have to say. Remind us again of the gentleness of Jesus and his call to discipleship is not one that is ultimately burdensome, but it is one that is, that is joyous. Father, be with the one preaching here this morning. Forgive him of his sins. May your spirit be upon him. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't, you'll find the, the text that we're going to be looking at today in your worship folder. And we're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And we're currently in a, a lengthy section that, that's all kind of grouped together. And this is part two of part three. Uh, and so the Sermon on the Mount is where Jesus outlines what it means to be a disciple in his kingdom someone who follows after him. And then he bids his disciples to, to follow. When he does that, he sets out also the demands of what it means to follow him. And so what we're doing today here is, again, this is part two of a three-part sermon. We looked at the first part last week, and it begins with, a, a first of all, an overarching principle that Jesus gives, which is in verses 17 through 20. And then he gives six applications of it, continuing on from there. And today we're going to look at the second two. But before that, let's first uh, do a recap of uh, verses 17 through 20, this main overarching principle. And I'm going to read, again, Jesus' words to us here. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The point of this here, what Jesus is saying, is that he doesn't want people to follow him only half ways, but with their whole selves. Jesus wants whole people disciples. And, what, and following Jesus then as a disciple, as a member of his kingdom, means loving what he loves. And Jesus loves righteousness. He came to bring righteousness to people who don't have it on their own. His kingdom is established upon righteousness. It characterizes how his disciples are to live. Jesus wants his people to live righteously. And now there's a difference, though, between self-righteousness and the pursuit of righteousness. Self-righteousness tries to gain our sense of acceptance and approval by our own actions. How well that we think that we can live according to a set of principles. And it's the self, that sort of self-righteousness then that leads to pride and then all the other nasty fruits that come forth from it. 
But that's in opposition to true righteousness. And true righteousness, the pursuit of it, according to Jesus here, is given to those who seek after it earnestly, not from themselves, but seek after it from God. Oh, we looked earlier in Matthew 5, in, in, chapter, in verse 6, one of the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus promises that the needy, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, who know that they don't have it on their own but are pursuing it, that they will be filled, they will be satisfied. So if you follow someone closely in life who talks about righteousness a lot, it's not going to take very long to figure out if they're self-righteous or if they're committed to, to, to true righteousness. Because true righteousness entails a humble posture. And as he discusses righteousness, Jesus makes one thing clear here. He's not lowering the standard of righteousness in any way. For these first century Jewish people, their understanding of righteousness was defined by the Old Testament laws that were given to them. The strict table of laws was central to their lives. Following it then was absolutely vital to maintaining their degree of righteousness. People dedicated their whole lives to studying it and to applying it so that they could best follow it. And perhaps though, surprisingly though to us, Jesus doesn't lower the standard of righteousness. No, in a way, he actually raises it. In verse 17, as we read, do not think that I have come to abolish or nullify the law and the prophets. He came and said to fulfill it. Jesus came as a greater authority to give greater insight into what that Old Testament law for these people really meant. The Old Testament law was given to these people by God, but through Moses, who went up on Mount Sinai, which is known in the Old Testament as just simply the mountain, and he delivered the law to the people. But here's Jesus sitting again on a mountain now, though as the Son of God himself, positioning himself as someone who's greater than Moses, and is giving people a greater law, and he speaks now as the definitive authority of that law that was first given to them. But here's the thing. He doesn't give them a new law. But Jesus actually reveals what was in that law the whole time before. He's not lowering the standard, but he's showing us what the real standard was the whole time. He wasn't concerned with a technical or a strict adherence to it. Always, at its essence, was a concern for the heart. It begged for a whole person righteousness, following, at, following after it with both body and soul. So that true righteousness as Jesus desires, and as which God has always desired and always called his people to, is a whole person righteousness. And he sets this in contrast then with these people who would have been considered the pinnacle of righteousness according to the law. The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders. In verse 20, when he tells these people then in verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This would have brought this deep existential crisis upon these people. How are we to exceed them in their righteousness? They devoted their whole lives studying and trying to live according to the law. They were known publicly for their righteousness. Yet when Jesus, though, says that the righteousness of his disciples must exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. He's not talking about grading their performance with a test that can be easily quantified by a percentage score. 
He wants to know how much they've internalized it. That true righteousness according to the law, true righteousness which exceeds the best religious leaders is concerned with the heart. A righteousness that doesn't merely hit all of the right notes, but is played from the depths of the soul. It's possible to focus only on the technicalities, yet to still miss the whole point entirely. So what makes all of this relevant for me and you as we are sit, sitting here as hearers 2,000 years later? Well, if you are a disciple, then this sort of righteousness is what Jesus also calls you to. It's a whole person righteousness, and it testifies to the kingdom of Jesus where that which is broken is restored into wholeness. The character of God and the beauty of the kingdom is seen by disciples who live righteously in the world. So that if you then consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, that he calls you to bear righteousness or to bear witness to his kingdom by pursuing righteousness. And he gives six different applications then again to this principle of the law of the whole person righteousness. And he says over and over, it was said, and references the Old Testament law, and he says, but I say to you, and he shows us what it really has. Last week, we looked at the first two, which are murder and adultery. And today, we're going to look at the next two in verses 31 through 37. Let me read them for us. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of God. Well, we have two applications here of this principle of righteousness are applied to divorce and to oaths. And I realize that there are likely a lot of us that are going to have questions about the first part here on divorce. And so I'm going to cover oaths first. But with both of these here, there's a common thread that I want us to see. Both of them are dealing with faithfulness. Being faithful and truthful in the heart, not just in our actions or our words. Because you can't talk about divorce without first talking about marriage. And that involves faithfulness to promises. And oaths also involve faithfulness to promises that are made in the truth of our statements. Whole person righteousness is living wholehearted faithfulness. How we maintain a truthful integrity in our lives. How it is seen in marriage. And to give you a picture then of where this is going to lead us, this sort of wholehearted faithfulness reflects the faithfulness of God to his people and to all of his promises. So I first, we're gonna, first going to look at oaths then starting in verse 33. Oaths and vows aren't something that we're too familiar with as being commonplace. But not so in this Jewish culture where Jesus was ministering. People swore 
oaths and vows all the time. In an oral culture, words had deep impact. If you swore an oath or a vow to someone, it was considered to be a sort of written contract. Like how we would sign a document attesting to something or promising to make good on it. Invoking a name in an oath or swearing upon some revered object was a way to add gravity to, what, to the statement just made or the promise that was just given. By my great Uncle Bart's headstone, I vow it to be true. I swear that I will commit to buying your ox upon the gold of the temple. And with that context here, Jesus then brings up this principle of the Old Testament law given to them that addresses oaths and vows. It's an overarching principle, not pulled from just one passage, but from several. One of them is Leviticus 19.12. Don't swear falsely upon God's name. In other words, if you're going to invoke God's name in a promise, then you better fulfill it with real truthfulness and absolute perfection because there's nothing greater to swear upon than the name of God himself. Also, another one that, takes, uh, that it alludes to here is Deuteronomy 23.22 says that if you swear to do anything, then you better do it. The underlying principle here that ran through the law was simply this, truthfulness and faithfulness. Be truthful to your vows and oaths. Take them seriously. But this is where the trouble arose in, the, in this whole thing. People were, careful not, uh, people were careful not to swear falsely upon God, which was to make a promise on God's name and to not make good on it. But to swear on lesser things or put in substitutes for God's name. And as they did, then the religious leaders started making all sorts of these technical rules about oaths which allowed them to get out of their promises depending upon who they swore it to, how they swore it, how they did it, what name they did it on, upon, or et cetera, et cetera. In other words, you could swear a promise upon something grand, but without having any real intention of fulfilling your word. And this whole matter turned into a rather sophisticated version of playground promises. Words spoken with tr without true intent, with fingers crossed behind the back, wrangling over technicalities. But hey, at least they didn't make promises on God's name, right? So they didn't actually break this law, right? This is where Jesus comes in and says, uh, but I say to you. He comes in as the authoritative interpreter of the law, and he says, I'm actually the son of God. So let me tell you about what this law means and what it really demands. And he says this in verse 34. Everything that you swear upon is in some way related to God. So that no matter what you swear upon, you better treat that oath as if you really meant it. Your words... Your intentions, the heart, need to be in alignment. You swear upon the heavens or the earth, it's God's domain. You swear upon Jerusalem, it's God's city. Swear upon your own head. Not only did God create your head, but he's sovereign over it. You don't have any real power over yourself. So all these vows not sworn upon God, but not carried out, yeah, still related to God. He stands behind everything. Jesus says then that the idea is that no oath is trivial. Every promise you made and haven't, didn't fulfill was sworn falsely. It doesn't matter how insignificant the matter that you swore upon. You failed to uphold your word. God takes that seriously. 
there's a heart issue to be had here. It doesn't matter how much you wrangle over words spoken. It's the truthfulness of your words and the intent in which they're spoken that matters deeply. Wholehearted righteousness involves a wholehearted faithfulness. And so, really, there's actually no need for you to swear vows. If what matters is the heart and the intent of faithfulness, then elaborate vows and oaths are really quite unnecessary. And they're probably more for show than anything. Jesus says all you need to do is to give a simple yes or no. Nothing more is required if you have the heart of truthfulness, of faithfulness, and of honesty. See, a disciple will speak with their intentions open and in plain sight. And not swearing a vow is actually preferable than so as to not make matters worse by invoking some sort of unfulfilled oath in the event that you do fail. See, disciples are people of simple honesty in their words. James 5.12, echoing these words of Jesus, says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Promises shouldn't be complicated. A simple answer suffices. And if an answer can't be given wholeheartedly then at that, at that time, then don't give one. Our words matter because they come out from our hearts. And that means that no promise is trivial. It doesn't matter how grand the promise is or how small and ordinary it is. A promise made is a promise kept. And if someone can't trust you fully because of the promise that has been made, then how can they expect you to do with something much larger and deeper? See, disciples ought to be known as people of integrity. Others shouldn't have to wonder or second-guess when a promise is made, but rather just assume that the words will be kept. Because discipleship and following after righteousness means being wholehearted and open to the words that are spoken. So there's oaths, but then we also have the the, the first one, actually, that we're going to go to, divorce. Verses 31 through 32. I've enjoyed really prepping for the Sermon on the Mount uh, for this series uh, ahead of Daryl's sabbatical, studying over it, looking over it. I've been really excited to preach it, but admittedly, this is the least favorite passage that I've been looking forward to here. That's because I know that this is a difficult subject. I know it's deeply personal for some of you, whether you've been on one end or the other of divorce, whether you are a child who's been left in the wake of divorce at some point in life. I know that this is going to bring up a lot of questions for some of you also. That's only natural. That's, that's okay. I'm not able to, or to address every single issue or question that this might raise right now here. Some of that's because there are a variety of questions that this is bound to bring, and I can't possibly foresee all of them in every situation. And so I want you to know, feel free to ask me personally, either after the service You can email me throughout the week, whatever it is, even if you have questions later. But also because even though this passage helps us to understand a theology of marriage in the Bible, it also has a greater and a a different meaning here in its placement in the Sermon on the Mount. Its purpose isn't primarily just to give us a theology of marriage. There's actually places in Matthew where Jesus expands upon this that are better places to go. Matthew 19. But rather here, what Jesus is doing here is showing us, again, this whole person righteousness. If the Sermon on the Mount 
outlines discipleship then for a countercultural kingdom, then our approach to marriage then also ought to be a pivotal way of how we demonstrate that. And as he's characteristically done, Jesus opens up the law and he illustrates its depth. And he does so, again, by quoting from the Old Testament, quoting from Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, regarding divorce. But a conversation about divorce can't really be done first without giving a proper biblical explanation of marriage. That's prime. That needs to take precedence here. We see from God's word that marriage isn't a human creation, but marriage is an institution that's been created by God and then given to humanity. And that means that it's him, not us, who get to define it. In Genesis 1, God says that he created man and woman and he brought them together, tells them to be fruitful and to multiply. And then in Genesis 2, in a sort of different perspective of the same event there, God brings man and woman together and he unites them as husband and wife in a sort of the first marriage ceremony. Here's God as the beaming father walking his daughter Eve down the aisle, presenting her to Adam in holy matrimony. And then Adam takes her and makes a vow to hold fast to her so that they might become one flesh. The physical union being a sign of their deeper union that they have together. So marriage at its heart is a binding covenant entered into between a man and a woman. And as it's later revealed then in Ephesians 5, marriage was always intended to be a sign of Christ's love that he has for the church. That Jesus takes the church as his bride and makes a covenantal promise then to love it, to care for it. And they are united together perpetually as one. God's intent and desire for marriage is for the husband and the wife to be united in this treasured covenant. And then for those vows to be joyfully and lovingly upheld, just as Christ does for his church. And that brings us back here to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus brings up this law then from Deuteronomy 24 regarding divorce. It's actually the only law really that actually says anything real explicit about divorce. And it mentions giving a certificate of divorce. The first part of this greater law, actually it's the first verse in what is four verses, says that if any man, it says, finds indecency in his wife, then let him give her a certificate of divorce. It was a sort of permission slip to go and remarry as she was sent away. And the rest of the law then continues by giving regulations on her remarriages then in order to protect her from exploitation and from being taken advantage of. So see, the the intent of this law that was given in the Old Testament about divorce was never actually really about how or when to divorce someone. But the point of it was actually how to protect the vulnerable woman in the event that she happened to to be divorced. And yet, what do we see over and over again as we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount in this section here? Again, it's the religious leaders getting themselves all wrapped up in the technicalities of the law while avoiding its deeper intentions. And they miss the deeper intent, not only of the law, but also of marriage itself. Instead of viewing marriage as this deep covenant and being the primary thing and latching on to that, they instead latch on to the exception of divorce as being God's will. And they, they take this idea, this word of indecency, as a reason for divorce, and they run away with it. That's not known exactly in the Old Testament context what indecency 
meant in this law other than some sort of a sexual connotation. But the religious leaders, though, took this word and, he, and its vagueness and they developed a whole tradition on what constituted grounds for divorce. It re really reflects the idea of no-fault divorce that we have today. Because the prevailing idea of the day here was any sort of displeasure that the husband had with the wife. In fact, some rabbis even said that, that a wife burning the dinner of a husband constituted legitimate grounds for divorce. And you can imagine then the fear and the anxiety that this must have caused some wives because the stability and the love that was intended to be at the heart of it was taken away. This became a sort of no-fault divorce just like we see today. The issue wasn't the law. No, the issue was those who disassociated it from its original tent of the law itself and also disassociated it from God's greater purpose of marriage, which should have taken precedence even as they approached then this particular law. So Jesus says, this is what I tell you, but I say, and he makes it a heart issue. You're supposed to know the greater principle of marriage. The definition which takes precedence before the exception. It's a binding covenant. And the reasons that you're giving for divorce then aren't according to this covenantal nature. And Jesus says that there's only one exception, one ground for divorce from either side. Sexual immorality. In other words, sexual infidelity. Because it violates the one flesh principle by uniting oneself with another outside of the covenant. The Apostle Paul also later elaborates upon this principle in, in 1 Corinthians 7 by also then including de desertion as grounds because desertion is a failure to uphold the covenantal principles that are at the heart of marriage. And that's what leads us to this confusing statement in verse 32. This is what it means. Unless a husband divorced his wife with the only legitimate grounds, which these men here weren't doing, then that marriage covenant was still seen by God as binding. And so that woman was still, in a real way, in covenant relationship to her husband. It was assumed then also that a divorced woman would get remarried because that was the only real way that a, a, a woman could survive financially in that time, hence giving the certificate of divorce. So she married another man, then her ex-husband, this is important too, at no fault of her own. Her ex-husband would have been responsible for her committing adultery because of that former relationship which still held. And assuming that the man divorced her then to marry another woman, then he also would have been committing adultery because of the relationship. And see, in missing the point of the law, then that man would therefore only heap double condemnation for adultery upon himself. And considering that adultery was punished by stoning, it was a serious offense. But by focusing only on divorce and trying to expand the grounds loosely, they miss the deeper point here. Just faithfulness to the covenant promises that were made in marriage. God's intent and his desires are not for divorce, but for covenantal faithfulness. The only reason that he gave a permission for divorce in this one instance is because he knows how the sinful, darkened hearts selfish hearts that enter into any, any marriage. It doesn't matter who. And it means that there are occasions where things will go wrong and where covenants will be broken. One commentator I read this week said this, 
quote, he is rescuing Deuteronomy 24 from misuse for a purpose never intended. It's a troubleshooting provision in case things went wrong. Even so, permission isn't the same as command. Can doesn't imply ought. Before divorce is ever discussed as a legitimate option here, the covenant understandings of marriage need to first be discussed. So don't focus on the fact that there is a permissive aspect to divorce. Focus on the true matter. Focus on God's desires and his intent for marriage. And that's the whole person righteousness that Jesus is getting at here. It's faithfulness. If all we see is the divorce aspect here without, pri- without the primary intent on faithfulness, then our thinking is a little closer to the Pharisees than we'd care to admit. A whole person righteousness that is committed to faithfulness in marriage doesn't just stay married or doesn't just maintain fidelity, but when the whole person is involved, it alters the approach that one takes to their marriage. It means that someone will not be content with merely staying married, but honoring and pursuing after their spouse. Husbands, it means loving your wives with the same self-sacrifice that Jesus shows the church upon the cross. It means seeking after her nurture and flourishing. Wives, it means loving and honoring your husband. Just as no cause divorce was a misuse of this law that missed the heart, so also is remaining in a marriage simply because you have to without honoring the other or working for their flourishing. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. It's not a call to leave, but rather it's a call to consider how to bring life into your marriage by putting real practical feet to the union that you have together. Friends, in a culture where marriage and divorce are treated lightly and where disciples are called to be salt and light, what better way can there be to put on display the beauty of the kingdom? That is a kingdom of faithfulness and of promises that are kept, of seeing the other flourishing and thriving in union. God designed marriage to be a picture of the gospel that's lived out with each other and before the world. It's a picture of the self-sacrificial nature of God as Jesus gave himself to serve those whom he loves and who he made promises to. And he ever continues to be faithful to the covenant that he made with her expressing with a joyful interest and with an enduring love. And this is where we see that whole person righteousness in faithfulness and integrity reflects the character of God. God is the ultimate faithful one. Even to people who are unfaithful, even to people who have hearts which waver in their faithfulness to him or even lack in their wholeheartedness. He swears promises and he always keeps them. God upholds them with the highest integrity and there is nothing that will persuade him from abandoning them. Jesus is the bridegroom who actively loves his church and who nourishes it. In the book of Hosea, God describes himself as being a faithful husband to a people who are likened to an unfaithful, promiscuous wife. Who then go, they go on to the, abandon God after, after lesser loves. And it makes the point here that we are all spiritual adulterers before God. That we are all running after our own pleasures or failing to remain faithful to him. We have all abandoned him and we have all shattered our ends of the relationship by our infidelity to God. Yet despite the broken vows, 
God commits himself to wooing back his people out of their unfaithfulness and reconciling them back to himself again. And his vow is sealed by blood. It's not sealed by a ring, but by the blood of the Son of God who cleanses us from all our unfaithfulness by his loving faithfulness to redeem his people then. So that even as disciples stumble before him in their failures to follow after him, God doesn't cast them aside. Jesus remains ever faithful to his promise that he made to them, that, he would, that was sealed by his blood on the cross, that made them God's people. It's what set his love upon them, which he, from which he will never turn aside. Jesus is committed to seeing the flourishing of his church, of his people, as they are in union with him. And disciples then have the beautiful privilege of reflecting back this faithfulness of God. Disciples are those who are recipients then of the grace from God's faithfulness. And following him then means bearing out that aspect in his character. So as you live upholding faithfulness in your lives, whatever area it is, whatever promises you make, with your whole self, you are reflecting the very nature of the promise-keeping God. His faithfulness to his covenant people and of his promises is echoed by his people then living in this faithfulness. The faithfulness of God to not abandon or leave us despite our persistent failures. That he remains committed to us in the purposes that he has for us, which is our holiness and glory, despite our issues and the struggles that we bear. That he maintains a loving interest in us, even though we often aren't very lovable, or that we don't love him as we ought in return. It's his promise to always be our God, to never leave us or forsake us. That promise will stand into eternity. Friends, may the faithfulness of God to you be seen clearer and clearer as we then continue to live as the people of God in his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, how good it is that you are faithful, that it is your very character, and that you are faithful with your whole self, that you do not swear promises falsely, that uh, you do not cross your fingers and hold them behind your back when you promise to always be our God and to love us and care for us. Father, make us a similar sort of people to be faithful wholeheartedly in, in not only our words and actions, but faithful down in our hearts, that our, the intentions of our hearts would match our words and our actions. And so we pray that you would be glorified by your work then to continue to make us into these people, these sorts of people, that we would bear witness then to your faithfulness in the world, that we would also, by our faithfulness with each other here too, bear witness to one another as brothers and sisters of the faithfulness that you have for us. Would you please then also master our hearts and our intents and align them with your will and make us this sort of people. In Jesus' name, amen.